All right, before I go on into the next lesson, April asked a question that's a really good question based on what I was talking about, and it needs to be explained. And that was that, like, you know, if you're having a discussion between her and Colin, and she says, but I'm frustrated, and I want to talk to you about this. Is it wrong to ever admit that you're frustrated? And that brings up really a good thing. You know, people, when I'm sitting here talking about the power of words, they'll say, don't ever say that you're sick. I had a woman come with cancer, and she I'd known her 25 years ago. She saw me on television, and she heard me giving testimonies and talking about how you can command healing and how you can make it happen. And so her and her husband came here to Colorado Springs and uh, spent a week here. And she had been to Rama, which, you know, is a great school and stuff, but she'd gotten this teaching on, don't you confess anything negative. And so I would ask her, I said, so where do you have pain? She'd say, I don't have any pain. And yet she did have pain. And I said, so where is the cancer? What cancer? And she thought that she could use her words to call those things which are as if they are not. That's not what the scripture says. It says you call those things which are not as though they were. But there is no scripture that talks about just confessing reality away. And some people have misused and misinterpreted this teaching on uh, words so that they won't say anything negative. They will not confess that I've got a problem. they got this huge gorder on the side of their neck. And you say, what's that? And they say, what's what? I had not got anything. And you know what? That's not what I'm talking about. Here's, and I'm going to say, try and say this quickly, but I could spend more time on it, but when I'm saying these things, I am not telling you to deny what is physical, tangible reality. Don't lie. But just don't go out of your way to speak those things. If you are in a situation where you've got to say something, like if a person walks up to you and says, Man, you look terrible. You're green. You just, you know, you look sick. You ought to go home. For you to sit there and say, there's nothing wrong with me. You know what? That just is bordering on a lie. There is something wrong with you. It's evident that something's wrong with you. But here's the way that I would say it. I'd say, well, you know what? I admit that it may look bad. In other words, you acknowledge that there is a physical truth, but... By His stripes, I am healed. And so what you do is you don't deny physical reality. You just deny that that's all there is. By saying, I may look sick, I may feel sick, but by His stripes, I'm healed. And by you putting forth the positive confession, life will cancel out death. And so you can do that. So here's another way of saying it. It's not wrong to admit that there is a problem as long as you counter it and say, but, and counter it with what the Word says and what you're believing. So it really just depends on where you put your butt. Okay. Amen. <laughs> you just got to make sure your butt's in the right place. Don't say that, well, the Bible says I'm healed, but I'm really feeling bad. You know what? You have released death. But if somebody is going to force you and they say, Boy, you look bad. What did the doctor say? You could say, well, the doctor said I'm going to die, but I have a greater report, and you can cancel out that negative thing. So I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even acknowledge what you feel if you don't have to. But there are some times that you are in a position where you have to. And an example of this is in the 11th chapter of the book of John where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And Jesus said, now, you know, they had requested two days earlier for Jesus to come and minister to Lazarus because he was sick, and he delayed for two days. And finally, the Lord said this in verse 11, These things said he, after, said, said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. You know why I believe he said that Lazarus was asleep? Again, it's because the word dead to a carnal person is final. There is no returning from death. But that's not the way it is with God at all. There is no problem raising a person from the dead to the Lord. It actually was more accurate to say that he's asleep. And there are scriptures that talk about, you know, that those who have preceded us and are asleep in the Lord. That is really a good way to describe a person who's dead. So the Lord wasn't saying something wrong. It wasn't like he was wrong. He was using that word intentionally so that he wouldn't solicit fear and unbelief from his disciples and things like that. So he says, our friend Lazarus is asleep. But here's how they took that. They said, Lord, if he's asleep, he shall do well. He's been sick. He probably needs to get some rest. If he's asleep, he'll do well. They totally misunderstood what he said. And so, in the next verse, it says, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. You know what? When he was going to be misunderstood... He did say, Lazarus is dead. He didn't want to say that or he would have said it the first time. He didn't want to speak dead. But when being misunderstood, he finally said, All right, Lazarus is dead, but he says, I say unto you, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. What he's talking about is, but you know what? I'm going to raise him from the dead. I'm glad for your sake. He spoke his faith. He just said three words, Lazarus is dead, but then he countered it with like three times that many words talking about that's not the end of it. So if you're in a situation where, you know, if you've got a problem, and going back to April's thing, if you are discussing with your husband or with your wife and you've got a problem, should you never say that there's a problem? Should you not even acknowledge that the person isn't treating you right or that you're frustrated or that you've been hurt? Well, I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't say it every time you felt it. I certainly wouldn't just spew these things out of my mouth. But if you're trying to resolve a conflict, it wouldn't be wrong to say that you know what what you said hurt me, but I am not going to let it destroy me. God is going to take care of me. But you know what? We just need to deal with this. You can couch it in a way that you aren't saying it out of bitterness and you aren't saying it final. And stuff, But you need to be careful. Everything I said in the previous class is super important. Your words are important. And boy, you need to be careful. If for whatever reason you feel you must say something negative, you better have a positive confession to counter it. So that it's not just throwing out there uh, the way that many of us do. But there is a place to admit that, you know, there's a problem and deal with it. But if you do that, make sure you counter it by speaking the greater spiritual truth. It's like, don't ignore gravity, but just recognize that, you know what, the law of aerodynamics, thrust and lift, can supersede gravity. And so don't just sit there and say, well, I'm earthbound. It's impossible for me to fly. No, you've got planes that you can not cancel gravity, but you can overcome it through the law of aerodynamics. You may have a problem, but you know what, I've got a greater reality on the inside of me, and that's the power of God, and I am not going to ever speak that I'm not going to deny that sickness exists. I'm just going to deny it the right to dominate me. There's a greater force in my life than sickness. Well, that's powerful. 
I don't know if you got all that, but that's good stuff. So here in John chapter 15, let's go on with this Christian survival kit, what Jesus was telling his disciples the night before his crucifixion. So in John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. You know, I just can't help but insert this. This really shouldn't even be a factor here, but this has been mistaught so often that I think it needs to be said. You will hear people say in verse 2 that God purges us. How does He purge us? He prunes us. He cuts off all of the dead things, everything in your life that's not of God. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have pain. You're going to have tragedy. You're going to have failure. And this is how God prunes you. Man, this has been pre... I don't know if you've heard that, but I've heard it a lot. And they will take this verse totally out of context to say that God is liable to put sickness on you to prune you and make you better. God's liable to make your marriage fail because that's the thing that's going to turn your life back around. And thanks. But if you take it in context, look in verse 3. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Did you know if you look the word purge up in the dictionary, you know how to define it? It's to clean. If you look the word clean up in the dictionary, you know how it'll define it? To purge. It's just using these words interchangeably. And so if you take it in its context, he that every branch that brings forth fruit, he purgeth it. How does he purge you? You're clean, purged through the word. God is not the author of sickness. He's not hitting you with these things. God is going to clean you up, purge you, prune you through the truth of his word, not through trials and tribulations. So that should have never been read into these verses, but since it's been said so often, it just needs to be pointed out that that's what it's saying. This isn't talking about He's going to put troubles on you. In verse 4 it says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except you abide in me. Boy, that's a powerful truth. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's important that you remember that. You aren't the vine, you're the branch. You aren't the source. You need to recognize who the source is. When you see the power of God flow through you, recognize that it's only because you are plugged into the vine. You aren't the vine. You didn't come from you. The power may flow through you just like the sap and the life flows through the branch out to the fruit, but it's not the branch that produces the fruit, it's the vine. Boy, it's a simple truth, but that is super powerful. You need to recognize it is your position in the Lord, your relationship to God that produces all of these things that are happening in you. So he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So, you know, I apologize. I got black all over me from something. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> I don't normally go around with black on my hands, but it's there. So anyway, have mercy on me. But um, I just now noticed it. So anyway, you need to recognize that God, you have to abide in Him. Without Him, you can do nothing. And this goes along. Thanks. Oh, that's even wet. Aren't you a blessing? Leave it to a woman to be prepared for it. You probably got kids. Yeah, huh? Oh, you can't go anywhere without something like this. Thank you very much. So um, 
Anyway, you have to recognize that without Christ, you can do nothing. And you know what? That is a truth that you absolutely have to learn. And those of you that remember my teaching on self-centeredness, your self-confidence, your self-centeredness is one of the greatest obstacles to God moving in your life. You've got to recognize that you are nothing without Christ. And that is an absolute truth. But religion has taken that truth... And they don't preach it all the time. There's a lot of religious people that have never learned that without Christ I can do nothing. But there are some branches of Christianity that have seen that truth and emphasized that so much that they've raised up a whole group of people who are absolutely convinced that they are nothing without Christ. But they've never come to realize that they aren't without Christ. They see themselves as separated. Oh, God, we can do nothing. Oh, God, we have no power. Oh, they, they'll quote scriptures like, you know, we have no power against this great host to do anything. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And they'll just identify, oh, God, we don't have any power against cancer. Oh, God, I have nothing. Oh, God. And you would just sit there and speak all of our fears and unbelief thinking that that is a righteous position. It is true that without Christ we can do nothing and we are nothing. But it's also true that I'm not without Christ. You have to have two apparent opposing philosophies in balance at the same time. And that is that without Christ, I can do nothing. But through Christ, I can do all things. And you've got to have both of those. You've got to recognize, God, I'm nothing without you. But God, with you, I can handle anything that comes my way. And you've got to have a confidence and a superiority attitude balanced with an inferiority attitude by yourself. Both of those things are necessary. And if you only have one, if you're over here thinking, oh God, I can do nothing, then you're worth nothing. You aren't going to accomplish anything. You aren't going to help anybody if you go around thinking, oh, I'm nothing without you, I can do nothing. That's true. But it's also true that you aren't without Him. And But then if you go around talking about, I can do all things, and you just conveniently leave off through Christ who strengthens me. And you go to thinking, you can do all things. Man, I can do it. I can handle this. I am sufficient. You're also a train wreck waiting to happen. Both of those things are wrong. If you take them by themselves. It's wrong to sit there and say, I can do nothing, period. And it's wrong to say, I can do all things without acknowledging that it's through Christ. Both of those are in error. But it is right to say, I can do nothing without Him, without abiding in the vine. But, praise God, I'm not without Him. I am abiding in the vine, and through Christ I can do all things. Those things need to be in balance. It's like a person walking a tightrope. You have to have a balance beam that has two opposite ends. You know, if you only held half of a balance beam, it'd knock you off that high wire. You need the balance. You need these two opposite extremes. You need weight over there and weight over here. And both of those things balance it out. You're out of balance if all you're doing is talking about, without Christ, I'm nothing. You're out of balance if you're talking about, man, I can do anything. You've got to put those things into its proper balance. And this is what it's talking about right here. This teaching on abiding in the vine is so obvious that it shouldn't need a lot of explanation, but it does because a lot of people will take this and make the statements that without me, you can do nothing. You know, as a branch can't bear fruit without being in the vine, so can you not bear fruit without me. And all of that's true. And there's, I'm not criticizing that. I agree 100%. Your personal relationship with God has to be the source of all power in your life. It is not your great talent and ability. 
But you can overemphasize this point to the point that you talk about you're nothing without Him and then don't think about who you are with Him. You've got to recognize the in Christ realities as well as you recognize the in the flesh realities. Both of those things are absolutely true. So this is just basically saying that you've got to recognize your total dependence upon God and what total dependence upon God will accomplish in your life. And putting this back in its context, he's talking to his disciples the night before his crucifixion and they're going to be going through this greatest trial of their life and he's telling them things that they need to remember to keep them from being offended. And you know, one of those things is that you just need to constantly be absolutely dependent upon God. I mean, you need to develop a dependency upon God, not to the point that you believe that you can do nothing, but that you can do all things as long as you're dependent upon God. That's the way that you need to look at this. You know, I was an introvert before the Lord called me to minister the Word, and I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. Now, there was a few people, my best friends, my family, somebody that I was totally confident with. But I mean, if a stranger walked up to me and tried to talk to me, I couldn't look in the the face. I couldn't talk to him. I I stuttered, I tongue-tied. And you know what? That Without him, I could not be doing what I'm doing. But now I've done it millions of times. There's no telling how many times I've ministered. But you know what? I'm still aware that without Christ... I could revert back to being an introvert. That is my natural tendency. Some of you don't believe that, but that is my tendency. There's times that I'd just like to crawl into a hole somewhere and not have to talk to people. That's my natural tendency. And you know what? Even though I've succeeded and overcome that to a very large degree, it's healthy for me to recognize who I am without Christ. And you know, there's times that I'll go in to minister and I'll start to feel in that fear or inadequacy and I don't sit there and deny it and say, I'm not that way anymore. I'm a changed person. That's not the way that I live my life. That's still my natural tendency. That is who I am in the natural. I am inadequate in the natural and I know that. And you know what? I think it's healthy for me to realize that I can't do what I'm doing in my own strength. It's healthy. When I get a little nervous about, man, you're going to be speaking to a million, two million, five million people on television. What are you doing? You know what? I I don't deny that and I don't reject it. I just sit there and say, praise God for Jesus. Isn't this a great testimony of I can do all things through Him? I don't deny that part. And see, there's a lot of people that would just sit there and say, no, that's not me. That's not who I am. Well, you are inadequate in yourself. And this goes back to the previous teaching about, you know, the words that you speak. I don't deny that the physical exists. I don't deny that I've got limitations and problems in myself. I don't deny that they exist. I just deny them the right to dominate me. Because I am not only physical. I am not only natural. There's a spiritual side of me. And so I balance those things out. And so I'm saying all of this about when Jesus said that you have to abide in me as the branch can't bring fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In verse 6 he says, If any man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. 
You know, this is confusing to some people, and some people take this as if you don't do what's right, God's going to reject you and cast you forth. And some people have even interpreted this that you'll be damned and go to hell if you don't do everything just right. Well, I don't interpret it that way at all because I just don't believe that that's the way that God deals with us. If He only used people who were qualified, He wouldn't use anybody. None of us are qualified. God doesn't use the qualified, but He qualifies the used. Amen. He just chooses you. And so I don't take this as God rejecting us. This is just saying that, you know what, if you don't recognize your dependency upon God and if you don't abide in Him, if you ever get out there and go to thinking, look what I've done, you're headed for a fall. Before pride, before a fall is pride. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, I, in my own personal life, if I was to ever think, boy, God, I've overcome my inadequacies, I've overcome my fear, and I'm awesome, and now I can do these things, and God, I don't need you anymore. And if I quit seeking the Lord and abiding in the Lord, I don't think God would throw me down. I don't think God would cast me forth. But I do believe I'd, I'd crash and burn in a short period of time. Amen. This doesn't mean... It just said what the results was going to be. There still is consequence to your actions. It, this doesn't mean that God is the one that is casting you forth. Matter of fact, it says that uh, men will gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. This is talking about what you'll reap. If you ever get into pride, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I remember Jimmy Swaggart. Some of you weren't seeking the Lord or weren't born again then, but when Jimmy Swaggart... Jimmy Swaggart was reaching more people on more television, preaching to more people than any other person in the history of the world ever had. He had a huge, huge influence in the body of Christ. And then Jimmy Swaggart, he was preaching against all of this sexual immorality, and then he was found with a prostitute. And when it happened, Jimmy Swaggart was just devastated. He got on national television and I watched his confession. And he started talking about this and he started listing. I was listing. He says, I'm preaching to more people than any person has ever preached to. I had more finances coming in. I had the greatest deal. He says, I was reaching more people than Jesus ever reached. And then he just said, I thought I could do anything. And when he said that, I said, that's the reason that man fell. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He lost his dependency. You know, when you're young, when you're starting out and you are so introverted and scared that you would just as soon not be preaching, you just know you're going to get up there and get tongue-tied in front of the whole thing and you're just absolutely sure that it's going to be terrible. And I mean, it wasn't just a fear I had that never was realized. I've stood in front of people before and literally not said a word. (laughs) I've frozen. Three, four hundred people in the thing. The very first meeting I ever held. I memorized three sermons and preached them all in five minutes the first night. And I just stood there and quit. It's not like this was just a fear that was unrealized. I have frozen, failed in front of people. And you know what? You, you, uh, you, you start overcoming that and then after a while, God, I can handle it from here. If I ever get to where I'm not abiding in the vine and drawing on what God has given me to do, you know what? I'm going to fail. And I think it's healthy to recognize that. It's like flying in an airplane. You need to recognize it's not you flying. It's the airplane that's flying. And it's your position in that airplane that allows you to fly. And if you don't believe it, step out of the airplane and see how long you're going to fly. 
It's the plane that's flying. It's Jesus that's causing the victory. And you've got to come to a place to where you recognize it's your total dependence upon Him. Just like a branch has to depend on the vine. The branch doesn't produce anything on its own. It's its relationship to the vine. In the same way, it's your relationship to God. And see, when you come into a crisis situation... Satan will go to condemning you. You won't be able to overcome this. You can't do this. And if you have moved away from abiding in the vine, if you've quit giving the vine the credit and you've started taking the credit, and God, I can't handle this. God, thank you, I can handle it from here on. You know what? That's when you get in trouble. So in a crisis situation, you know what you need to do? You need to go back and say, Father, I thank you that it wasn't me that produced any of the victory in the first place. I'm in a crisis situation and this may be bigger than I am. Maybe this is totally out of my league, but this is no problem for you. No big deal. See, that's what all this ministers to me. Jesus was telling His disciples, abide in Me, trust Me, depend upon Me. Their tendency was to revert back to their own self-preservation and stuff instead of depending upon God. And He's saying, look, don't forget the things that I've told you. Remember what I've said. And he goes on to say in this next verse, he says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Again, in the context, Jesus was talking to his disciples. If you remember the things that I've spoken to you, there were 14 times Jesus prophesied, I'm going to die. And I think seven of those times he prophesied, I would resurrect again. And there was about four or five of those times he said it had happened in three days. If they would have taken the words that He said to them, and if they would have let those words abide in them, did you know instead of panicking and being depressed and fearful and grief-stricken over three days, if the Word of God that He had spoken to them would have abode, I guess is the way you say that, would have been abiding in them, then they wouldn't have got into fear. Instead, they could have said, man, this is going to be awesome. Jesus prophesied He's going to raise from the dead. They could have been saying, man... Is this what he was talking about? They could have been anticipating. They could have been rejoicing in the upper room instead of crying. They could have been anticipating. Some of you think, you can't do that. I did it with my son when as far as I knew he was dead. But you know what? I got a word from God. God told me this is going to be awesome. And you know what? I actually was praising God and laughing and rejoicing while my son was dead for nearly an hour before I found out the results. Don't tell me you can't do this. You can do it. If the Word of God abides in you and you abide in Him, then you know what? You can rejoice in the midst of a bad situation. God's Word can be more real to you than what the doctor is saying, than what the lawyer is saying, than what your wife or husband is saying, than what your own mind is telling you, than what your body is telling you. It's key. It goes back to, I think, the second or third point that I made about knowing God through the Word and really understanding what you have. You know what? God has given us His greatest weapon that we ever have. That's the Word of God. And you can take this Word, and if you abide in Him and His Word abides in you, then you can ask anything, and it will be done unto you. Boy, that is a promise that is far beyond what any of us have tapped into. I can guarantee you there's some of you in here that know that there's things that need to happen in your life. 
and you've asked and yet you haven't seen it manifest. And you know one of the reasons? Because you aren't abiding in Him and His Word's not abiding in you. You're more moved by what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel than you are by what you believe. So this is true for all times, but especially in a crisis situation. You better get in the Word. Boy, you better turn on the Word of God. You better let the Word of God dominate you. That's true all of the time. And if we would do that, you'd find that you wouldn't come into as many crisis situations because the Word of God will uh, enlighten your eyes, is what it says in Psalms uh, 19. It will show you things to come. It will warn you. If we were to dwell in the Word and let His Word abide in us, you wouldn't have as many crises. But then when you do get into a crisis, you better make sure that you turn off everything else that is going to drain your energies and attention, and you focus on the Word of God 100%. And that's exactly what these verses are saying. And he says in verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. That's showing you that God's will is for you to be fruitful. He wants you to bear fruit. God's, God is not glorified by failure. And so God doesn't want any of us to fail. God is a multiplier, not a subtractor. You know, there's a guy that used to work for me and he went and took over a church, a church that was thriving. It's actually Wendell Parr's church. I don't think that there's anything wrong here that I'm speaking out of turn. But when Wendell came here, a guy that worked for me went and took over Wendell's church. And Wendell had approximately, I think that there was $350,000 worth of equity in the church that he gave me. It was a nice auditorium that had seat, I don't know, 500 people or something like this. This guy began to start... Pre- they probably had two, three hundred people going to church within a year or two. He had whittled it down to a hundred. The church was dying in a hurry. And finally, he sold this building that probably could have sold for a million dollars. He gave it to the school system. There was a school right across the street and he gave it to him. I think, for $150,000. Wendell was just devastated. Bob Nichols, who kind of considered himself to be Wendell's pastor went to this guy and threatened to throw him in jail. And of course he had no basis to do that, but that's how adamant he was. I called this guy and talked to him and he says, God told me to do this. And I said, I just can't believe that. And it was based on this principle. God is a multiplier, not a subtractor. Man, Wendell carved that church out of nothing, built up this equity, had things going, had a good group, and all you've done is come in and we've went from 300 to 100. I think at that time he was below 100. You've got a million dollars worth of building and you're wanting to sell it for 150000 and actually lose money on the deal. They still owed some money against it. I think he'd have to pay 10000 more. I said... This doesn't compute. God is not a subtractor. He's a multiplier. It's His will that you succeed. And yet there are some people that just get it into their mind that, you know what, God wants me to uh, suffer or He wants me to do without. That's, that's God's not that way. In the same way that I would want to see you succeed, God wants to see you succeed. He's glorified that you bear much fruit, that you increase. God is not into decrease. You just need to take that as a an axiom, a truth about God. And when you evaluate God, do you want me to do this or do you want me to do that? You know, there's some people that have actually presented options to me about things that God wants me to do. And I believe that God wants me to bear much fruit. And right now, I'm bearing much fruit through the things I'm doing. And if somebody was to present a new avenue to me, a new opportunity, 
I can guarantee you one of the things that I would evaluate whether this is God or not, is it going to increase, increase my fruit? Am I going to bear more fruit? Am I going to impact more lives through this or less? And you know what? If it was less, then I would seriously doubt that that's God. Now again, you know, there could be a specific situation. For whatever reason, God may want to send me to some corner of Africa and just devote my life ministering to somebody. I'm not saying that couldn't happen. But I'm saying I doubt seriously that that's the way God's going to lead me. He's not going to lead you from a place of bearing fruit to bearing less fruit. He's a God of increase. And so that's one of the ways that you evaluate things. And you need to remember that in the midst of a crisis situation. It may look like that, you know what, things are going to go from bad to worse. Maybe this is God. Nope. He wants you to bear much fruit. God wants you to be... uh, fruitful. He's glorified that you bear much fruit. You need to get that into your head. God's for you and not against you. God is not into decrease. And yet there's some people that they they have this mindset that God really does want to just punish me, see how much I'll give up for His sake. And so, you know what, God is... They, they, they have this kind of fear and so they have some opportunity to present themselves and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They've always felt that God is going to do something so they choose the negative thing and totally miss God. Again, there's a balance to this because like when I was first starting serving the Lord, I had an opportunity presented to me a job that guaranteed me even retirement. This is when I was 18 years old. I was given a job that could have produced retirement in a... Level, uh, management level position in the Arlington, Texas public school system. And you know what? That looked like I was giving something up to follow God. But it was just a temporary thing given up. I've gained much more than I ever would have given there. God ultimately does bring you to success. And I remember that I was pastoring in Childress, Texas, and for the first time in my life, I could see light at the end of the tunnel, and it wasn't a train. We were actually having our needs met. Things were beginning to work. And God told me to move to Pritchett, Colorado, to a town with 144 people in it, 10 people in the church. And you know what? That looked like a negative step. But it actually was a positive step. My income... Man, I, when I moved to Pritchett, Colorado, I, was, I started receiving $6,000 a month there. And this is back in 78. That was a lot of money. And it was just Jamie and me. I didn't even have a ministry incorporated yet. And I didn't take an offering. And I didn't have a salary. I never took up an offering. And yet I got never less than $6,000 a month. People would just stick it in my pocket. I'd open up my Bible and $100 bills, $1,000 checks would fall out. And you know what? It looked from the natural like I was taking a back backward step, but it was a promotion. Ultimately, God is glorified in you succeeding and increasing. But sometimes what you think is going to be a demotion is actually a promotion. And so there is a balance to this, but ultimately the point that I'm making here is absolutely true. In verse 9 it says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. And I'm getting into the next point. So I went through that maybe a little quickly. Anybody got a question or comment on that? Talking about abiding in the vine, being dependent upon God, and yet at the same time recognizing that you can do all things through Him. We got a question on the um, if you abide in Me, the abide in Me is that um, obviously you're abiding in His Word, and that's abiding in Him. But but is there more um, just spending time in His presence, or 
I don't think you can abide in Christ without abiding in the Word. I don't think it's possible. But is that the only way that you abide in Christ? No, I don't think it's the only way. I think that you can... You know, there's lots of things that you can do. Man, you need time just praying and worshiping God. You can sing songs and keep yourselves... uh, You can build up yourself on your most holy faith, praying in the... In the Spirit, and then verse 21, Jude chapter 1, verse 21 says, Keep yourself in the love of God. Praying in tongues will keep you in the love of God. Singing unto yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5 is. So there's multiple things, but I would say that the Word of God is like the uh, thread that binds them all together. And if you aren't in the Word of God, then you're going to find out that your prayer time is going to de-evolve into griping and complaining. And you're going to be speaking negative things instead of positive things and stuff like that. And so the Word of God will keep your prayer time positive. If you aren't into the Word, you'll find out that you'll start singing all of this Christian junk that is out there that is just unbelief. I tell you, most Christian music is detrimental. It hurts your faith instead of helps your faith. You know, KTLF, I support it. I give them money. And I am not against Christian radio, but there are certain disc jockeys on KTLF I won't mention, but there's one that I guarantee you, when they are play, I nearly always turn it off because it's just... Oh, God, it's so hard serving you. It's, you know, we're just poor wayfaring pilgrims. It's just whining, griping, complaining. People talking about, God, I'm angry, but I'm going to still serve you. I'm faithful. You aren't, but I'll hold on anyway. And You know what? That junk will kill you. It's bad. And so uh, what I'm saying is if you aren't, if you aren't in the Word... Just because it's got Christian on it and because it uses the name of Jesus doesn't mean that it's going to be godly and it's going to be correct. And if you don't know the Word, you'll get into wrong praise and worship. If you don't know the Word, you'll pray wrong. If you don't know the Word, you'll act wrong. If you don't know the Word, you can go to church all the time, but you'll associate with the wrong group of people. The Word of God is what holds everything together. So there's things that you can do besides being the Word that help you abide in Christ. But nothing will ever supersede the Word and everything has to be put up against the Word of God. And so I would say that the Word has to be the primary way that you abide in Christ. It's not the only way, but it's the primary way. It has to temper everything that you do. It's like a measuring stick that you have to put everything you've got up against that and make sure that it conforms to that standard. And if it doesn't, don't do it. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Um, Andrew, the scripture was talking about if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you, you desire. Well, I know that in the Old Testament, I don't know if you will. Will you? Well, that's, that's not faith. You have to believe that you receive when you pray. And if it's, not the re- it's, if it's not the asking like, Father, you said that I could do this, and so I'm asking, give me this day, my daily bread. There's no question mark at the end of that sentence. That's actually a demand. It's not a demand in the sense that you feel you're superior or that you can intimidate God, but it's a familiarity type of thing where a child comes in and they don't say, 
Oh, Dad, I know I'm unworthy, but would you please feed me today? You know, you know, if your kid approached you that way, and if I heard him say that, I'd say, you know what, you aren't a good dad. You have not communicated your love to them correctly. And yet that's the way most people pray. Oh, God, I know I don't deserve it, but would you heal me? Question mark. That's unbelief. But it's proper to come in and say, Father, I know you've already done it. And just as a matter of politeness, I'm ready, so heal me. I'm asking and receiving. You know, if it's that kind of a demand where a kid comes in and says, Mom, I'm hungry. Feed me. They're making a demand. And it is a question, but it's not really a question. It's more of a demand. And I think that that's the way that that would have to be taken. Anybody else? Colin? Um, can you talk more about 15-2? Like I understand you use the word um, purge or prune. What about the first part where it says, Every branch of me that does not bear fruit he takes away? Well, again, it has to be interpreted what takes away. Some people will say takes away means he'll kill you. He'll remove you from the earth. If you aren't bearing fruit, what's the point in leaving you here? That's your purpose. And so God will just kill you early. I've heard it taught that way. I've heard that God will uh, literally remove you from the body. I just don't believe that that squares with Scripture. This is an analogy, and you need to be careful. Like I've been using the analogy that a vine has to be the source and the branch is, you know, attached to the vine. And there's truths in it. But anytime you're using an analogy, you can take an analogy to an extreme that you uh, get in problems. And so, anyway, just based on other scriptures, I don't believe that it says when he takes you away that it means that he's going to kick you out of the body of Christ or kill you and remove you from the earth. That's inconsistent with other passages. Would it correlate to, like, Proverbs 3 where it says, Do not spies the chastening of the Lord. I hope the Lord loves you, cracks. Well, I look at... Uh, chastisement is always being corrective. This implies to me not corrective, but it's just... Uh, I don't know that this is... I don't know, I have a good answer for you, but I look at it this way, that if, say, for instance, God, I started getting off, and if God started correcting me, and time after time, I mean, he's, he's long-suffering, but if He corrected me time after time after time after time after time, and I just kept going my way, then you know what? I think God had just... Say, you know what? I'll use somebody else. And he lifts his anointing. He won't forsake me. He, the gifts and the callings are without repentance. He wouldn't take his anointing away. But he doesn't have to keep opening up doors for me. He doesn't have to keep performing miracles like I get. I just got a brand new time on the uh, Lighthouse Television in Uganda for half price. It was a miracle. I had favor. Somebody just gave me this thing, saved me $7,000 a month. It's going to increase our... Uh, you know, God doesn't have to do that. He wouldn't forsake me. I'd still have an anointing on my life, but if I quit seeking Him, I, I think He'd quit opening up doors like that. Why is He going to promote me if I'm in rebellion and if I'm not representing Him correctly? It's not that God will pull the rug out from under me and take me away and throw me away, but you know what? He could quit promoting me. He could raise up somebody else to do what He told me to do and just quit promoting me. That's why I would take that. I don't think that it's talking about rejection or judgment. It's, it's similar to, uh, you know, I've got employees here. And I love my employees. And I try and t treat them right and do what's right by them. But does that mean that regardless of what they do, I'm going to treat all of them the same? Nope, I do treat them differently. You know what? The people who perform well, I give bonuses and incentive to that I don't give to everybody. And if there was an employee that was just doing something totally wrong, I may not fire them. But you know what? When it comes time to put a person... Say the person over them in management quits and I need a person to step in, 
I'm going to pay attention to what they've done. And if they've got a wrong heart and if they've been sowing discord and causing problems, I'm not going to punish them or hurt them, but I'm not going to promote them. Why in the world would I want to promote and increase their uh, responsibility and influence so that they could pollute other people? So somebody might think, well, you're punishing them. No, I'm not punishing them. I'm treating them better than they deserve. They deserve to be fired. But you know what? I'm not firing them. I'm letting them stay here. But I'm not going to promote wrong attitude. That's the way I look at it, that God won't ever forsake me. He's not going to punish me, but that doesn't mean that He has to continue to promote me. He could raise up somebody else to do what I'm doing. And that's not inconsistent. That's not operating in grace. Grace doesn't mean that He gives you everything and just works in your life independent of how you perform. I operate in mercy and grace towards people, but you know what? When it comes time to promote, I'm going to take the cream of the crop and promote the one that's going to do the best job. And if I have ten people in a department, I am going to base it on how faithful they've been. And and your actions and your things will influence the way that I respond and who I promote. I may have grace towards all of you, but I'm going to have... uh, preference over a person, your actions do affect the way that I would promote people. And I think it's the same thing in the ministry. So if you aren't abiding in Christ and if you're doing things wrong, I think that God could take you away. Say, for instance, He wanted you to be the pastor over a 5,000-member church, but you're just blowing it. You aren't seeking Him. You're causing more problems than you're causing help. You know what? God will still love you and you'll still have an anointing on your life and He can use you in the rescue missions, in the prisons, somebody who's worse off than you are. There's still a place for you. But he's not going to let you pastor that church and mess up his body. Uh, This is speculation. I hate to get off on this, but you know Ted Haggard could be an example of what we're talking about. God has given him mercy. For 20 years he's had this problem. And he's been having some serious problems. God has given that guy lots and lots and lots of mercy. But you know what? It's that church, like Rod Parsley said this the Sunday that they announced it. He said, we're all sadder than we were last week, but we're all better off. Because you can't have a problem like that in the church without it reproducing itself in his ministry. It was affecting people, and there's things coming out. There's been people that have been hurt and lots of things that have happened. And you know what? I wouldn't doubt. I don't know that this is what happened. It could be that he just reaped what he sowed, and it's all natural and say, you give Satan enough inroads and he'll come eat your lunch and pop the bag. It could be nothing but just total natural things. But it wouldn't be inconsistent with me for the Lord saying, you know, Ted, I've given you 20 years to repent. And you've just taken this as far as I'm going to allow it to go. I'll raise up somebody else. And the Lord could have removed the lid and have exposed this thing for the sake of Ted as well as the church. And to me, that's not grace. I mean, a a lack of grace or judgment or punishment. It's for Ted's own good. It's for the church's own good. You just can't let things like that fester. It's like having an infection in your body. You know what? Your body can function with an infection in it for years sometimes. But ultimately, that's going to take a toll on your immune system. It's going to do damage. And ultimately, you just need to get that thing out. And sometimes, uh, you know what? You've got to make an incision and let that thing come out. You've got to go in and take that stuff out. And it's harmful, but it's ultimately good for you. So I'd look at that as being an example possibly of if you aren't abiding in me, I'm going to take you away. God hadn't forsaken Ted. God still loves Ted. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. He's one of the most gifted, anointed people that ever was. God's anointing hasn't left him. 
But you know what? God doesn't have to keep giving him that platform. And Ted's going to... He's still got a lot to offer people. But you know what? If it was me, and people differ with this, there's some people at New Life that think, well, why don't we just forgive him and put him back into a position of leadership? Man, I think that is dumb to the second power. Dumb, dumb. Amen. Don't ever do something like that because this is something that's gone on for a long period of time and I guarantee you in a week, month, year, five years, you do not change your personality and character. This goes down to the foundation levels and so it's going to take a period of time for him to get over this if he ever does and I can guarantee you I wouldn't uh, ever recommend him to be back in this position of leadership because of the potential damage to the body of Christ again. But does that mean that I'd never let him minister if I was, you know, in control? No. He can minister, but just go minister to somebody who's in jail. Go minister to the drunks. Go minister to the addicts. Go minister to somebody who, you know, they're so bad off that it's not going to destroy them if you fall. But don't put this guy up as your poster boy and hang your hopes on him and let him go with Barbara Walters and all of these other people and become a, a model for Christianity when he hasn't proven himself faithful. Amen or oh me. I don't see any of the things I'm saying here inconsistent with grace or mercy. It's just, you know, God is going to love him and God will use him and God can help him overcome and he could be stronger individually than he ever was. But I don't think it would be right. I don't think God will ever put that responsibility back on him. He gave him millions of chances and he didn't take it and God's just taken that away, put somebody else in. Yes, ma'am. The way I look at it, too, is God loves His people, too. Right. He's merciful to His people to protect them. That's right. I was talking to a man during lunch today that he loves his wife, but his wife has just flipped out. She's lost it, taking the daughter for three weeks. He hadn't seen her. And you know what? In one way, you could sit there and say, well, he needs to turn the other cheek. He just needs to love her independent. And yes, that's true, but at the same time, you know... There's been people that they've killed their kids. He's got a responsibility to that daughter. And because he's forgiven her and still loves her, does that mean that he's not going to do something and possibly go to a lawyer and find out where she is and do something to make sure that he still has access to his daughter? See, some people would say, well, you shouldn't do anything. You just ought to operate in love towards her. Well, you've got to consider the daughter too. He's got to operate in love towards his daughter and protect his daughter and do what's necessary and... I told him it just depends on what God tells you. If God tells you everything's okay, stay the course. But I said, unless you have a special word from God, you know, if it was me, I'd go find out what I can do to solve this situation because that woman's flipped out. There's no telling what she's capable of. You need to do something. Take care of that situation. Let's take a break. We'll come back.